0: everyone and welcome back to the virtual voyage on radio free hillsdale 101.7 fm i'm your host abigail snyder and this is the armchair travel show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone if your comfort zone is your car you stay there if your comfort zone is your dorm room you stay there and if your comfort zone is your living room you stay there last time on the virtual voyage we learned a little bit about how the land of israel has literally come back to life. See, the Jews were exiled from this land, and they tried to reconquer it on several occasions, but they were unsuccessful. Last time we learned that the land of Israel turned into a wasteland, literally. It was even like this into the 1800s when Mark Twain visited the land. He wrote a book that I'd highly recommend. I don't know if I gave you the name last time, but but take note of it now. It's called Innocence Abroad. And he wrote about that concerning the absolute desolateness of Israel. Do you remember what he said? He said something that even the cactus had left the desert. That's how bad it was. The cactus, they live in the desert. They had left. We then saw that the real catalyst for bringing the Jewish people back into the land of Israel was the Holocaust. Because when the Jews were turned away from virtually every other country, every other country that they sought asylum from turned them away. So they went back to that desolate land of Israel. So, of course, like I said last week, don't misunderstand me. The Holocaust was one of the worst, I mean, if not the worst, things that people have ever done to, uh, well, another group of people in the history of the world. But this bringing back of the Jewish people illustrates something to me, that God is sovereign in all of his affairs. His goodness is always going to come through, and that is true even in the most awful of situations like the Holocaust. So after that discussion, we headed down to the Rockefeller Museum, which is just past Herod's Gate in Jerusalem, and we specifically focused our attention on a room in the museum with a lot of wood. Yes, wood, right? We learned how that wood is actually not just plain wood, it actually is pretty special because it's most likely from Solomon's temple. Solomon had to import cedar wood since Israel doesn't have enough wood to build the huge structure of the temple. So when Solomon's temple was destroyed, there's a good chance that that same wood was kept because anyone would have recognized its value. Israel just doesn't have tons of forest in which you can just go and chop down wood. So when the Muslims came and needed to build the Alaska Mosque up there on the Temple Mount, the wood they probably used for that first building was the old cedar wood from the temple. It makes sense. Of course, I'm telling you, this isn't just a wild guess in the dark, right? We've had scientists, archeologists, different people groups have come in and work with this wood and they have tried to discover if it is indeed the wood from the temple and they've used various dating technologies. And as far as we can tell, there's a high chance that it really is. Now we know this wood was thrown out when the Alaska mosque was updated, right? They rebuilt it. Didn't, they didn't want to use the old wood anymore, but then people found that old wood that they had thrown out. And then part of that wood was what we saw over there in the Rockefeller Museum. And as I also mentioned, there's a man that I have met who has a lot more of this wood. It's really cool. And I do hope that I'll be able to get in touch with him so that we can see it in the future. Well, this week on the virtual voyage here on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM, we're going to head to the Israel Museum, which uh, is just about a few miles away from our hostel here in Jerusalem. The walk will be very fun. Don't worry, I've done it many times. It's quite nice, actually. Well, when we're there, we'll actually get to see the, the Dead Sea Scrolls inside their own little building. It's called the Shrine of the Book. And we'll also learn a lot about archeology span through all of the exhibits that they have. And this honestly is one of my favorite places in Israel, and I think you'll find out why because there really is just so much that they've collected from the various time periods uh, in Israel, which obviously Israel really contains almost every time period possible. It's like an archaeologist's heyday. So uh, I think it's just a really fascinating place that we're going to be able to explore. Well, as we set out, we're getting a bit of a late start today. So no worries. I know we're all tired. You're tired. I'm tired. It's been a long past few tours and I thought we could all use the extra sleep here, but you know what that means. It's closer to lunchtime. So we're actually going to stop for food on the way to the Israel museum. So everyone follow me as we walk up Jaffa street. Oh yeah. There's a good pizza place right here. And even better, there's a hamburger shop right next to it. So all of us can find something at one of those two places really is perfect. So those of us who want pizza, come on over here with me. I'll help you all order first. So if you just look at the menu, as you can see, Israeli pizza tends to kind of be just a crust, a lot of tomato sauce, and then a very small amount of cheese. Uh, It's cost effective. Hey, you'll see that the topping selection is kind of limited. And also there are no meat toppings. You cannot get meat on pizza. Why? Well, this actually gets into a discussion about kosher restrictions. That will also apply to our virtual voyagers on that side, wanting hamburgers. What's up, guys? See you right there. Listen to the discussion. So in the Torah, there's a prohibition, and it is don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Perhaps you've read the Torah, you've read that that long law, right? The section that a lot of people don't like to read because it's long and boring. We've talked about here in the virtual voyage how it actually is fascinating. I hope that you'll go back and read it because there's so much there that you can now understand after having been in Israel. But anyways, the prohibition, don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. The Jews have taken this to mean that any dairy product and any meat product must not be mixed together. Thus, it's not kosher to have a pizza with pepperoni on it because that's a mixing of meat and cheese, right? So you can now imagine some other situations where this mixing might prove problematic. For example, let's say that a Jew wants to go get uh, a latte, right, with some milk. Well, if he drinks his latte, he cannot go and have a hamburger or actually any meat product. He can't go and have that hamburger at the same time. Actually, if he were to drink a latte with milk, he would actually have to wait, uh, yeah, it's six hours, six hours between his last sip of the latte and the next time he could eat any meat. So let's say, hypothetically, if at dinner he had a hamburger uh, he had waited six hours for from that last sip of milk, right, he couldn't have cake uh, for dessert that had any that had had any milk added so we'd have to wait another 6 hours so a lot of times the Jews come up with a way around this where they actually will make cakes without milk or they'll make desserts without milk so you can start to get an idea of maybe how this prohibition is working but back to the pizza here so you can get any toppings you want from the very limited selection i mean it's somewhat limited a lot of veggies right but now you know what happened to all the meats so personally i just get a plain cheese pizza. It's pretty good. Actually, I do remember one story. There was uh, one town that my family and I stayed in for a week. It was up in the north of Israel, so a few hours uh, north of us, and there was this very cheap pizza shop, and you could get a pizza for an equivalent of, i am well, estimating probably about four or five dollars. So my family and I ate there all the time because, like I mentioned, I would travel with all seven of my siblings and my my two parents, so there there were 10 of us. So it was very cost effective to be getting that pizza, but the pizza was quite literally just bread, some sauce, and then even less cheese. So I guess there's a reason uh, to be thankful that when it comes to pizza, we can probably all attest that kids don't discriminate. So now that we've placed our orders for the pizza, we'll just wait for them here. Those of you getting pizza, wait here, and I'm gonna go help the other virtual voyagers order their hamburgers. So let me step over to the adjacent hamburger restaurant. All right, guys, so same thing applies for you all. In Israel, no such thing exists as a cheeseburger. You can probably imagine why, that's because of the kosher restrictions. Having cheese, which is obviously a milk product on top of this meat product, being a hamburger, is a big no. So you can get all the toppings you want, but there will be no cheese. I, I think it's pretty good though. You won't miss the cheese, don't worry. All right, well, I see our food coming out to us, so I'm gonna stay over here with team pizza, uh, cause I do love some good Israeli pizza, but I need to note one more thing about the strict kosher restrictions. One time, my mom was doing this for my siblings, where she was jumping back and forth between a pizza and a meat restaurant or something. And some wanted pizza, some of the kids wanted hamburgers. And so as she was jumping back and forth, at one point, she had a hamburger in her hand. And she walked over to the pizza restaurant, which was just right next to to the hamburger restaurant, and they promptly yelled at her to turn back. The Jews are so careful to not break kosher. And they feared that having this hamburger cross the line into a pizza restaurant where there's cheese would do just it would break kosher so make sure that you stay on your side when you get your food bringing a slice of pizza into a kosher hamburger place is really bad they fear you might set down your pizza then you contaminate the entire place then you have a real mess in your hands i will note there is an exception the only exception is if you put your food on a tray so we've toured before with our orthodox jewish rabbi friend And he would be able to bring his hamburger, say, uh, around us where we were all eating pizza and he was able to make sure he wasn't breaking kosher by putting his hamburger on a tray. It's a little bit interesting, right? So we're all eating at a table. And as long as he has that hamburger on a tray, he's fine. Some of the laws don't always make sense, but there really is a rabbinic tradition. Lots of writings, lots of ink has been spilled as, as one of my uh, Jewish friends likes to say, lots of ink has been spilled by rabbis over the years on many issues. Uh, so if you wanted to look into that, you could, and there really is a reason, a rationale for why they do what they do. So now that everyone's gotten to eat, let's continue on our walk. We have to wind through some of the streets, but I can always tell that we're getting closer because I see a building that reminds me, the Israel Museum is very close. It's the Knesset, which is the legislative branch of the Israeli government. So there's a lot of Israeli political talk we could get into, how the government works, how how all of that goes. But for now, just look over here to the right and you see that building? Yep, just look at the beauty of it. It's rectangular. It has pillars on the outside supporting it. I think pillars make things look elegant and beautiful. If you look to the top of the building, the large Israeli flags are flying. Their darker shade of blue is just reaching to touch that lighter blue sky. It's perfect. The bottom level have lots of windows. I think that's always a great touch to have the natural light there and the reflection. And there's a main room, which we can't see from here, obviously, but there's a main room inside the building, inside the Knesset, and that holds the various seats for those uh, elected to the Knesset. It has 120 seats for all of the different political parties, and there are a lot of political parties in, uh, in the Knesset. So that's all I'll say about that for now, but let's keep on walking. We have to go just a bit farther, and then we will reach the Israel Museum. We made it here, guys. Yes, we should be proud. Maybe we'll take the transportation system back, but we didn't need to come here. So go us. As we come up to the Israel Museum here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, let's head in through these front doors. We do have to go through metal detectors, and our bags do, too. There's so much valuable stuff in here that this is a necessary precaution they take. I cannot tell you how much cool stuff is in the Israel Museum. Actually, I cannot tell you how many times I myself have gotten lost in the Israel Museum. No joke. It's a very safe place, right? Israel as a whole we've talked about is very safe. So sometimes, um, let's say we want to take a day trip to the Israel Museum. My parents will say, okay, kids, go in groups, you know, check it out. The only issue is when they say it's time to close, we don't know where we are. Well, we get help, we're fine, I promise. But I'm just telling you that there, there's a lot of stuff in here. There are a lot of rooms and a lot of hallways. Uh, so my recommendation, let's all stay close so we don't have any lost virtual voyagers. So as I said, the Israel Museum has many wings, holding displays of everything from art, to archaeology, to models, and more. Uh, really is everything. They even have a modern art exhibit, which is a little unique. Um, Yeah, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) We definitely won't get through all of it today. Like I said, I didn't get through all of it when I first arrived here and toured, and sometimes I still wonder if I've actually made it through all the entirety of the Israel Museum. Um, There's just so much here, and they keep adding stuff, which is really cool. So while I really like the Israel Museum now, the truth is that when I first got to the Israel Museum, I nearly fell asleep at every exhibit. Okay, before you run out that door thinking this is going to be the most boring day ever, hear me out. Remember when we first arrived in Israel and we were so tired because we couldn't really sleep on the plane, it was uncomfortable, and then we got here and we tried to tour? Yeah, that's what happened to me. My mom planned our trip in such a way that when we landed at around 11 a.m., 1030 Israeli time, I believe, she thought that it would be a good idea that the first place we go to would be a nice air conditioned building where we could try and orient ourselves to Israel by looking at these exhibits. Uh, needless to say, this is not the best idea and we definitely corrected this for future visits. So now when we arrive in Israel, uh, we would go and do a tour of something outside and we'd have to walk around and stay awake. And that's the same, uh, the same. I guess, well, that's what I did for you guys, right? Just so that we're able to stay awake and get on the time zone. So all of my siblings and I We're doing our best to listen to our fantastic tour guide, but to be honest, many of us just ended up on the floor falling asleep, which, that was the (laughs) time. But all that goes to say that when I came back here, when I was actually awake, I was amazed. This place is fantastic, like I've I've been saying, it's huge. The piece of land that the museum sits on, I believe it's, oh, close to 20 acres in total. So obviously, we will not hit everything today, but we will hit the highlights. Uh, But your ticket here that I'm going to give you will actually let you in twice. So if you bring that ticket stub with you on a day that we don't have a tour, you actually should be able to get in for free. So just come on over and, you know, walk over, take the route or take public transportation and you'll be able to get in. So the first thing we're going to go check out, we're going to head on outside and follow me down the path. We're going to go see the pretty large model of Second Temple Period Jerusalem with the temple included. So come on over here. Obviously, this model, as you can see, is not large enough for, actu- for us to actually you know, go in and walk in. That'd be cool. But the scale is, I think it's around 1 to 50 is what they say. But we're able to walk around this this path around the outside of the model, right? So the first thing to notice is that we see these city walls of Jerusalem. And we know that those were crucial for defense. We learned about that a few tours ago when we got to walk on a section of the walls, Remember? And then you can see just all the various little structures that would have been representative of where people lived, where they shopped, where they went to synagogue, that's all of those little, the little buildings that you're seeing around. And of course, if you bring your eyes to the front here from where we're standing, there's that huge structure with the outer retaining walls and what looks to be the temple itself, and that is, that is, is well, that is exactly what it is. I think that the construction here they have of the Temple Mount is great. So right in front of us we can see exactly what it would have looked like before it was destroyed or what we believe it looked like before it was destroyed. We can see Herod's retaining walls. Uh, Now note that the western wall, which we've been to, is actually over there on that other side from where we're at right now. And then of course there's the temple here. You know, at some point we'll have to find a model of the temple so we can actually uh, really examine the parts, just the temple itself, not the surrounding area. But you can still get an idea of the temple structure from right here. So the piece towards the back that's sticking up, see back there, that's the Holy of Holies. And that's the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And only the high priest could enter in there once a year. Now the temple has its own courtyard. So maybe you can make out that small little gate. Yep, see it right there? Yeah. So right inside of that little gate is where the altar would have sat. And then if you take one kind of step back with your eyes, a little weird, one step back with your eyes, it works, there's another courtyard still inside the confines of the temple structure right there, and that was called the outer court. Now, if we bring our eyes to focus on the courtyard that's outside of the temple area and outside of like the little temple temple gates, we can see it's quite large, it's really surrounding that entire Temple Mount platform, that's the court of the Gentiles, and it's the farthest that any Gentile, any Gentile could get to the temple. So when the temple is rebuilt, this will actually still hold true. Jews will be able to go into those inner courtyards within the temple, but Gentiles will only get as far as this outer court. Of course, if we look to the right from where we're standing, we can see the city of David, which we've been to. Remember, down under the stone is where Hezekiah's tunnel is at. We actually, of course, keep in mind that men literally chiseled through stone to create that, so we can't see it from here. It's not visible. And then if we come down with our eyes, we can see the pool of Siloam where the water would have been collected. And it's so cool to think that we've actually been at all of those places. It's a little hard to make out in this model, but some models I've seen have zeroed in on the Temple Mount. And then you can get a really good idea of the City of David right beside it, Hezekiah's Tunnel, and the Pool of Siloam. So the last thing with this model is go ahead and bring your eyes to the Temple Mount. And then just come down a bit and see how it drops off into a valley right after the Temple Mount. Yep, that area is the Kidron Valley. We walked through it before to get to the Mount of Olives. And that's on the other side. Okay, obviously not depicted in this model. If the Mount of Olives had been depicted, it would be probably close to where we're, we would be standing where we are right now on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you remember, I've said this a few times, but I said that we could walk down in the, in the Kidron Valley at uh, this time, but back in Jesus' time and earlier, it wouldn't have been possible. We even supposed that there was a bridge built that would have actually connected uh, the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount through the Kedron Valley. And that's because of how deep the Kidron Valley was back in the Second Temple uh, period. And you can kind of see that here, that there really is no way for one to just walk through that because it's so steep, it's just straight down. So let's continue our tour here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. We're going to walk over this way along the path to the white dome structure here. There's a huge fountain of water coming down on it. And if you stand close enough, you can kind of get splashed, get some, get some mist, right? So this is the Shrine of the Book, and that's the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls are housed. Now, if you turn around, just completely make a 180, you'll notice that there's this huge black wall that towers above us. Light and darkness. That's the imagery that's being evoked by these two huge structures. It actually relates to the imagery that is discussed on one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is called War of the Sons of Light against the Sons of Darkness. So the dome is representative of the Sons of Light. And then what it faces is the black wall representing the Sons of Darkness. Also this dome structure over here, turn back to the white dome structure. The reason they chose to build this as a dome is because it's a holding place Uh, to keep the Dead Sea Scrolls, obviously, but it kind of looks like what the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in. See how it kind of comes into a point like a pot or a jar might? The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in a pot just like that. So they wanted the shrine of the book to resemble this. So when I first saw this white dome that sloped up to a very odd point, just doesn't look right. I was confused, but that really is the story there. So many of us have probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Uh, But we're actually going to go to the place in the desert called Qumran, where they were discovered by a shepherd boy, and I don't want to spoil that tour. But the main thing to know with the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they are the oldest manuscripts we have of biblical texts. Now, these texts aren't all from the Bible, as we have today. Only about 40% of the manuscripts are from actual canonized scripture. I think another 30% um, are containing Second Temple Period texts that are not in the canon of scripture, I believe. Uh, such as the book of Enoch, the book of Tobit, we also have another 30% about that relate to specific sects of Judaism. And those have been useful as people have looked at them and been able to figure out what certain peoples have believed at certain times and what rules they followed. So the scrolls range in dates. They're dated from the last three centuries BC and the first century AD. What you should take away, and you've probably heard this before, is that they're extremely old old scrolls to be found. Ah, tongue twister there. (laughs) Well, enough talk. Let's walk on in and check them out. As we walk into uh, the shrine of the book here, notice the signs. No food or drink, obviously. No pictures at all. These scrolls are so precious, we have to be careful to preserve them. So they can't be exposed to any light from a camera shutter. You'll see that it's dark inside, and that's to try and preserve the environment in which the scrolls were found. The scrolls were preserved uh, so well that they were kept in a dark cave, for thousands of years and we cannot just shock them and expose them to constant light. In fact, even this darkness that we're in, this kind of dim light darkness is too light for the scrolls and so the scrolls are rotated through the exhibit and what we get to see and a scroll will be out for about three to six months before it goes back into another room where it's not exposed to any light and kind of just rests. Oh no, this is horrible timing because we're just walking to to see these scrolls but we're out of time. So I guess this just means we'll pick up right here next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our tour of the Israel Museum and head into the Shrine of the Book to see the actual Dead Sea Scrolls and also what is believed to be the oldest ancient manuscript we have of the Hebrew Bible the Aleppo Codex. I'm super excited! See you next time on the Virtual Voyage!